You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check them out. One of the things that has long been um, a mystery to me is how the armies, the opponents on either side of the Civil War could both claim to worship the same God, uh, read the same Bible. Lincoln brought this out in one of his addresses. Maybe it was his second inaugural. Um, that they both pray to the same God, read the same Bible. Uh, there were Bibles in virtually every home. I mean, it was like... <laughs> It was like the Gideons had been to every house in the country. Uh, everybody had a Bible. Um, everybody knew the Bible. And yet, there were an untold number of Christians in chains and Christians in the North fighting Christians in the South uh, over this issue. And um, so it's, I think we have inherited a legacy of uh, using the Bible in our own way for our own ends. Mark Knoll in his book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, draws this out. Uh, my guest today has also written on uh, this subject. His name is James Bird. He's from Vanderbilt University, and we'll be talking with him about it. And before we get into it, though, I want to call your attention to a brand new book that has just come out from Crossway called Recovering the Lost Art of Reading by Leland Reichand and Glenn Fay Mathis, A Quest for the True, the Good, and the Beautiful. Uh, I cracked it open and it talks about uh, the distractions that we face and how it has inhibited our ability to read. And my first thought was, and it'll probably inhibit my ability to read this book. Nonetheless, the book does look very interesting and encouraging. Uh, Reichen's from University of Oregon has written or edited 50 books. Uh, he may not have a smartphone. So, Recovering the Lost Art of Reading, Leland Reichen and Glenda Faye Mathis, A Quest for the True the good and the beautiful. Uh, my guest today on commentary is James P. Bird. He is the professor of American religious history and associate dean for graduate education and research chair, graduate department of religion at Vanderbilt University. So clearly he has been doing nothing his entire life. He's also the author of Sacred Scripture, or yeah, Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, the Bible and the American Revolution, Oxford. And the book we'll be talking about today, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood. The Bible and the American Civil War, also with Oxford, and currently writing another book for Oxford. So, dude, I hope they're paying you good because they've got you on the hook for like the rest of your life. Actually, I'm looking at your picture and you look like you're like 30 years old. So you have a lot of life left in you. Well, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> James Bird, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you so much, Marty. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for 
had me on. So you uh, you got your bachelor's at Gardner Webb. You went to Duke, and uh, and then you got a doctorate uh, from. Hang on a second, Vanderbilt. I should have known they wouldn't let you go once you got mm-hmm. there. Um, what are right. some other What are some yeah. other things folks might want to know about you? Yeah, I don't know. I've been uh, I, I've been working with the Bible. Uh, I guess I started out uh, like I was raised Southern Baptist in okay. Western North Carolina. Bless you. And uh, remember the old the the Bible draw sword drills. Yeah. Uh, from growing up in vacation Bible school and Sunday school, and have always been fascinated by the Bible. And uh, I guess along the way of of learning, like going into divinity school and then going from Duke to Vanderbilt, I was really interested in how the Bible has been used in American history and uh, reading people like, you know, Mark Knoll, Harry Stout and people like that and other historians who who have worked with the Bible's use. So I've done a little bit of that across the across the years and uh, I've really enjoyed it, but you know, I'm also an administrator, so working with students and uh, in the graduate department of religion, working with PhD students, I enjoy that, enjoy teaching, and you know, uh, but played football in high school, played played tennis in college, so man, try to stay active, that kind of thing. Man yeah. for all seasons here. Good night. Try. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, um, the Bible in. America, specifically in the era of the Civil War, this has always been something that's uh, interesting to me. Um, a lot of people will remember Lincoln's remarks about both sides, you know, praying to the same God that he would come to their aid and that kind of thing. Uh, but you actually break down how each side kind of understood and applied the Bible uh, to their efforts. So uh, get us started on on uh, how that worked and, and what it looked like. Well, you know, I, w- I was fascinated by that quote, too, Lincoln saying both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. And and I was fascinated by that, and the irony around it, I mean, I think part of what Lincoln was getting at was that people had expected the Bible to answer all the questions, mm-hmm. and people had trust in the Bible as the absolute authority, and a lot of people did. If people owned a book, and not everybody did in, in the United States at the time— but if people owned the book, the, the, that one book was probably the Bible. Yeah. And yet, when it came to slavery and when it came to this war, they came to blows over the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I just was interested in how that happened. And I previously, as you said, I, I worked on the Bible and the American Revolution in the book before that. And so I was just interested to get into this uh, this project and find out how both sides did read the Bible. And pray to the same God. Well, I was raised in the South as you uh, were, and live in the South as you do. Um, and you know, I was uh, I was raised with uh, I, I guess I would say a more Southern ter- interpretation, um, a Confederate heritage interpretation uh, related to slavery and the ownership of slaves and the treatment of slaves. Um, that was different, differently viewed in some cases between the North and the South. Explain a little bit about how the, how the two parts of the country interpreted the scripture as it related to the ownership of slaves that we saw in the South. Right. Uh, and I think it's important to note that people read the Bible in a lot of different ways around slavery. You know, there were just, there wasn't just a Confederate way in a, in a union way. Um, 
but the way I tried to get at it was a database approach uh, using uh, machine learning. Uh, there's a digital humanities uh, methodologies that you can use to scan through thousands of texts and pick out biblical citations. And I was able to see which verses were most popular on both sides. And, and what I saw, like in the North, uh, there was, of course, in the North, there was much more anti-slavery and abolitionist argument, uh, sentiment. And they were using various biblical texts to make that like, um, you know, in, in Acts where Paul talks about in Acts 17, 26, says that all are made from one blood, all nations of, uh, on the earth. Right. So if every, if everyone who lives is from the same family, you know, tracing back to Adam and Eve, then how do you enforce uh, racism or enslaving one race uh, over another? Mm -hmm. And so seeing that in the North and, and various other texts in the North, and then with white Southerners in the South, they're picking out biblical texts and, you know, slavery is in the Bible and they're, they're saying, well, nowhere does Jesus explicitly say slavery is evil. Nowhere, nowhere does Paul explicitly say slavery is evil. Mm -hmm. So they're using the literalist kind of interpretation that way. And just looking at the different ways that, that they viewed it. And of course, um, these Southern slaveholders had a vested interest, you know, they were, uh, they, were, they were making profit out mm -hmm. of holding people in bondage in this horrible system, and they used the Bible to support that as best they could. You um, you have a subheading in here that says the Bible is an eminently, or the Bible is eminently a patriotic book. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, a lot of Americans had come to believe that their nation had a special place in the, in, in in God's eye, and and they believed that that providence was guiding the United States as almost like a God, like a new Israel. Mm. That this was a new special relationship with this nation that no one else had had. And so, when they read the Bible, uh, they saw it as endorsing God's kind of rule over nations. So they saw the Bible as a very kind of a pro-American book. Not that they believed that uh, the Bible was actually literally talking about the United States right. uh, in every case, but that the United States was a biblical nation, that the Bible was the nation's book. And when they read things like David and Goliath, and when they read things like the Exodus, uh, like in the American Revolution, you know, they saw the Exodus, they saw like, a lot of the patriots saw that, you know, they were like the children of Israel fleeing Pharaoh, who was King George III. Wow. And they saw the Bible that way. And, you know, even like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, when they were thinking about a, a, seal, a great seal for the United States, they thought about Exodus images. So this idea, and they would say explicitly in the Civil War, I found many people were saying the Bible is a patriotic book. It's, it's against cowardice. It's about virtue. It's about patriotism. And they would make that argument to, in many cases to try to convince people that the Bible was telling them to go to war, which is a hard thing to get anybody to do. Right. You know, nobody <laughs> wants to, hopefully wants to go to war. Right. Um, and they, they were trying to do that and no better, more authoritative source than, than the Bible. So were people uh, going to war because they felt that there was a divine obligation or a divine imperative as a result of these kinds of conversations or persuasions? You know, I think, uh, I think it was part of it. I don't think there's ever any one explanation for why 
we do a lot of things and why we go to war. Um, but it was certainly part of it for a lot of people. Uh, not, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people who did join up and go to war, they did so, uh, they did so believing that they were doing a good thing and that they were doing something that God had blessed. That's very clear. I mean, you mm-hmm. see that, uh, James McPherson, who's one of the, uh, the most preeminent Civil War historians, says that the Civil War ar- armies were arguably the most religious in American history. Um, not to say that religion was the only reason they did what they were doing, but it was part of the part of the thought process in in going to war for That's sure. Amazing for did, a lot of people. In your um in your research, did, did you find that there was uh, any um moral quandary with? I mean, we we read the brother against brother thing, and we've always you know in the Civil War, the case of the Civil War, we've always known as brother against brother. We've heard that forever. But did mm-hmm. you did you find people that were like having second thoughts because it would be like Christian against Christian in war, or did each side see the other side actually as non-believers and it was okay to kill them? You know, this is fascinating, and it, even before the war, I mean, before the Civil War, the several of the major denominations, Protestant denominations, and by the way, Protestantism dominated religion at this time. This yeah. wasn't. This was a very Protestant nation at this time. It's not. There were there were many Catholic churches for sure. Uh, you know, some some twenty five hundred or so Catholic churches, and and there were some Jewish synagogues and temples. But there were like fifty thousand Protestant churches. Martin Knowles says, I think, in eighteen sixty in America's Guide, he talks about how there were about as many Methodist ministers as there were postal workers Goodness. at the time in like eighteen sixty. And that's just the Methodists. That doesn't even count the Baptists and all the other denominations. So. Protestantism was major uh, during this period, and before the Civil War, the major Protestant denominations, several of them, divided on regional lines. The the Baptists divided, so you get the Southern Baptist Convention Mm -hmm. uh, before the Civil War, uh, and the Methodists divide into the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South uh, before the Civil War in like 1845 or so, 44 and 45. Over and in slavery is a major part of those divisions. Mm-hmm. So they were already, you know, religion uh, was already so much a part, uh, and specifically Protestantism, of the way people were thinking. And those divisions, and when they were dividing, I mean, there was an interesting debate between two Baptists um, who were arguing over slavery in a series of letters, and they they said, if the churches divide. Um, it's a bad sign for the nation. <laughs> this is, it's, it's looking like a civil war. And a lot of people are thinking, you know, if the churches divide, what chance do the, what chance does the nation have? If the Christians can't even get it together yeah. and can't get along, if the ministers can't even get it together and get along, what about how, what do we expect from the politicians? Wow. If that isn't, if that isn't echoing <laughs> through today's time, I don't know. Right. Another thing that is. Um, so right. what, what about Lincoln? Um, I, I know from a um, from an editorial and a newspaper and a cartoonish type perspective, uh, he was really reviled in the South and might, might even have been reviled by some yes. of the North as well. But yes, how did the how did the Bible play into their interpretations or how, how did it uh, inform their interpretations of either respect or hatred for Lincoln himself? 
Well, Lincoln, for one thing, knew the Bible up one side and down the other. He <laughs> he knew the Bible extremely well, and he quoted the Bible a lot. Uh, I, I think the second inaugural address, Frederick Douglass observed that it was more like a sermon than a state paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and yet Lincoln never joined a church. Uh, he he. So his actual religious convictions are somewhat difficult to decipher. Yet um, you're right. Southern whites uh, were believed, you know, they used a lot of biblical uh, uh, biblical terms to describe Lincoln. He was like the, uh, some some called him the American the American Nebuchadnezzar. Mm. You know, he was because they saw him as a tyrant mm-hmm. because he was trying to force uh, what they considered to be abolitionism on on them. And, and because, and, you know, of course, secession began when Lincoln was elected president right. in 1860, even though Lincoln was trying to claim that he wasn't an abolitionist, he wasn't a radical abolitionist. They knew that he was opposed to slavery. They knew that uh, the Republican Party was opposed to slavery. So um, so they figured they no, they no longer were going to have power. And in the North, you know, after Lincoln's assassination, which is what I'm working on now, Lincoln was called a martyr. Uh, and Biblical text. He was like the American Moses. He was the one who freed enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had various biblical texts that they used to describe Lincoln and Lincoln's legacy. He was kind of the Christ figure because think about it. Lincoln was assassinated on Good Friday. Wow. Um, and that's when Booth shot Lincoln in Ford's Theater and it, it was Holy Week. So, you know, think about your average minister. You know, they're in the North. I mean, they're thinking, all right, the war's over. Thank God. Um, maybe this nightmare is finally behind us. They're going to preach this wonderful Easter sermon in which it's going to be very celebratory, talking about the resurrection and the, the end of the war. And they find out because of telegraphs, a lot of ministers probably didn't find out until Saturday afternoon uh, that Lincoln had been assassinated. So they have to say, well, they can't preach that sermon on Easter. Right. Yeah. So they they couldn't just preach the same sermon on Eastern Sunday. So they so I read some over 300 assassination sermons where they were talking about Lincoln as a martyr, Lincoln as as a Christ figure that Lincoln sacrificed for his country. And that became a very important part of American civil religion, the image of Abraham Lincoln. And even today, Lincoln's thought of as I mean, obviously, Lincoln has a lot of critics today, like Lincoln always has from yeah. various points of view. People talk about, you know, Lincoln, Lincoln's racism. Lincoln wasn't mm-hmm. some Lincoln wasn't some radical abolitionist. And he was, you know, even Frederick Douglass at the time was very critical of Lincoln being slow on slavery. Uh, so certainly he, he's got his critics. Mm-hmm. But over time, there, he's also had a lot of admirers. He's still probably I mean, I know not probably he's still listed as one of the most respected presidents in American history. And a lot of that is probably due to his. Uh, the way people have thought of him as kind of a marker figure. Wow. Well, you're listening to Uncommentary, and I'm talking to James P. Byrd. He's the author of A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room in their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. 
Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot. And uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. So chapter nine is entitled without the shedding of blood is no remission. And I just want to, well, first of all, let me say that uh, most of the chapter titles are either a, are a, a part, a part of scripture. They're a phrase from scripture and occasionally kind of a, a pithy saying of some sort that kind of gets its foundation out of some kind of morality. But this one is mm -hmm. straight from scripture without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And I got to tell you that when I saw this title um, on the, um, in the table of contents, it was like fingernails on a blackboard to me because mm -hmm. I know what this verse is means both in the old Testament and the new Testament. I know it has very specific meanings and yet I just have to think that it doesn't really apply to either one of those meanings in the context of what we're talking about. What exactly, or how exactly was that verse used? It was used in many ways uh, during the civil war to give uh, a sacred meaning to the death that had taken place and was taking place in that war. I think we have to remember that the Civil War was the most deadly event um, in American history. Uh, if we look at just casualties, the, the war casualties outpace those of any other war. I mean, the American casualties. And, and you know, we're talking about 750,000 estimated casualties yeah. in the war. And, there never nobody had seen death like this before. Um, it was a completely new phenomenon, new experience. And raised as people were, reading the Bible, understanding the, the value of sacrifice, uh, they quoted these scriptures and and other scriptures and talked about you know sacrifice is a huge theme in the Bible. Of course, I mm -hmm. mean it's Hebrew Bible. It's it's of course in the New Testament. You know Christ obviously major figure uh, in regard to martyrdom sacrifice. Uh, so this theme gets picked up several times to, to praise soldiers for their sacrifice. It's uh, after the war, uh, there are uh, theologians and ministers who are talking about how the, all the death had to have a purpose. Mm. The, the sacrifice had to have a purpose. And in Lincoln, in the Gettysburg, you know, Lincoln talks about how these dead shall not have died right. in vain. Yeah. 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 So North and South, this idea of sacrifice and make this sacrifice made the nation sacred. Uh, mm. it, it was a sacred sacrifice and it gave a sacred, uh, a sacred cause to the nation, a sacred meaning to the nation. 
And you see that in North and South. I mean, both like competing civil religions, competing religious views of the nation, the Southern lost cause mentality because of the Confederate soldiers sacrifice mm-hmm. and the, the Northern civil religion as well. You, um, you've, you've kind of touched on a couple of things related to the preaching. Uh, you said were, you read 300 sermons, um, that were preached after Lincoln was assassinated. And, uh, I, you mentioned preaching tangentially a couple of other times, but I want to dig into that a little bit because as a, as a pastor, um, you know, I'm, I try to be careful how I, um, that I don't mix, uh, Christianity or preaching with civil religion, uh, that I keep mm-hmm. a, a hard and firm boundary between uh, nationalistic patriotism and what it means to follow Christ. But what did you what did you find generally speaking? So as you went through sermons that were preached in the South and sermons that were preached in the North, was there a lot of and I'm just going to use the word cheerleading? I know it's not the great word, but it kind of communicates what I'm saying or what I want to say. Was there a lot of from the pulpits of the North and the South this? pressing the fight, the literal war, uh, to keep up the good fight and those kinds of things that were coming from the pulpits of the churches in the North and the South. Yes, there was a lot of that. And, and specifically calling out the other side as being, uh, evil or wrong, uh, using biblical text to defend the side the preacher was on and casting the other side as the enemy. So, yeah, absolutely. You see a lot of that. It's interesting because they, many ministers also tried to be careful about talking too much about politics. So, and a lot of times they didn't do it on Sunday mornings. I mean, sometimes they did, but you could see like a sometimes a Sunday morning sermon, you, it would just be a normal Sunday morning sermon right in the middle of the war and not even mention it. Same way in the revolutionary period. Right. But they had so many of these special occasion sermons, these Thanksgiving Day sermons. Mm-hmm. Both Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln per- declared days of fasting, days of Thanksgiving, and those would always have thousands and thousands of sermons preached in North and South. So, yeah, it, it, the stage was set for ministers to preach. And the, thing, the other thing we have to remember about this period and the same as for the revolution, the sermon was much more important in terms of much more visibility. You know, at the time, you know, you didn't have TV, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't have the internet. Uh, a lot of times the most social occasion a lot of people had was at, at church when they would see a sermon that or go see a sermon preached and sermons got reprinted in newspapers all the time. Wow. During the Civil War. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. got a lot of, a lot of distribution. So I want to ask you a question. It just came into my mind. I think this may be the first time I've ever thought about this in my entire life. So, and it's, it's only, it's related to what we're talking about, but it's probably not the subject of your book. So feel free to say, Hey dude, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> um, it's, it goes to what you just said about Lincoln and Jefferson Davis proclaiming days of Thanksgiving and fasting. So I had never thought about, and I say never, I'm 57. I've never thought about that until just when you were saying this is pastors taking their preaching cues from politicians, right? Like directly, like the the politician calls for a day of fasting and preachers preach a sermon and call their churches to fast. Um, have, have, have Christians by and large, uh, so let's say historically speak to that as much as you can or or want to. Um, but like even 
how how is that formed? Let me say it this way: How has that formed Christianity? Rather than, um, are, are we just like praying for the 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 king as we're instructed to in Second Timothy? I think, uh, or are we actually taking our cues from the political head of state who is for good or ill basically instructing the pastors of the country what to preach? Yeah, I mean, the, the tradition for this, I guess, I mean, we can trace it back into several different strands, but certainly Puritan New England, they very regularly had like days of uh, Thanksgiving, days, days to talk about political events, uh, and the sermon was very important in doing that. I mean, uh, we talked about Skip Stout, Harry Stout's book, New England Soul, mm-hmm. uh, is you know, describes this as do other books. So there was a tradition of sermons that were political, uh, that political sermons. And so when they were declared days of Thanksgiving, days of fasting, they did so uh, to comment on the political situation. Now, as I said, you know, on a typical Sunday morning sermon, they wouldn't normally do that. But when there's a special called day of Thanksgiving and fasting, they would. So they would take their cue from the political leader. And at the same time, many ministers would say, and they would almost apologize for it. They'd say, you know, I don't, I don't normally talk about politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't see myself as talking as that's my major calling, but, and then they would go on to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Apply some of what we're talking about to contexts today. So I had a conversation last year with Andrew Whitehead. He co-authored a book Mm -hmm. on Christian nationalism. And he mentioned at that time, uh, most people I think tend to think of Christian nationalism on the right, but he said, you know, there is Christian nationalism on the left and, you know, people aren't always aware of it, but it is there. Well, what you're talking about sounds to me kind of when we're talking about Christian uh, or civil religion in the South and civil religion in the North is just another kind of way of looking at this idea of Christian nationalism, where it used to be like top and bottom. Now it's like left and right. Um, How do you kind of see the same themes, not necessarily slavery, obviously, but how do you see the same themes of Scripture being used by uh, by politicians in ways that affect the church rather than maybe the other way around where the church is living out the themes and somehow affecting the larger culture. I see it. I mean, I see that the Bible is still very present. I mean, it's, it's not present in the same way that it was before. It's not present to the same intensity uh, with as much content as it was before, because people just don't know the Bible Mm -hmm. in general as well as they did before. Uh, But it's still there. I mean, you can, you see, uh, constant references politically uh, in the media, even to to the Bible. I mean, uh, uh, President Biden's inauguration, it was hard to miss the Bible. Mm-hmm. I think the Bible that he swore his oath of office on was, you know, about five inches thick or something. You know, it had been in his family <laughs> since the late 19th century. So the Bible is still very much a part of our national life. And and uh, so you see that in any time the Bible is quoted. And, and Biden actually quoted the Bible in the inaugural address. Yeah, I remember that. Level uh, verse. So the Bible's still there, uh, and it's still, anytime it's quoted, there's always, uh, it's enlisted. And the way I saw it, 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 it that what I see is, is something somewhat ironic and to some extent disturbing in the Civil War is that so many people were claiming 
that they only believe the Bible, that uh, that they're just going back to the Bible. Some were, uh, Mark Knoll has a term called Bible onlyism. Some mm-hmm. people claim to believe only the Bible and not, they're not obeying a pope. They're not obeying any other tradition. They're believing the Bible. But when they do that, often they're enlisting the Bible to support something that's not really based on what the Bible says. Man, it's, I it's love just, that. I love that phrase, enlisting the yeah, Bible. I enlist, love that. They're enlisting it like a, almost like soldiers yeah. enlisting in war. The Bible's enlisted for the war. The book is uh, a holy baptism of fire and blood, the Bible and the American civil war. And you ought to buy it just for the cover. The cover is just, it's <laughs> stellar. It really, really is. I'm a great fan of uh, good book covers. And this is a really good one. Uh, Dr. James P. Bird. Uh, Vanderbilt. Are you online? Do you do anything like Twitter or anything like that? I am on Twitter uh, and Facebook. I don't do a lot on it, but I, I do pay attention to it. Uh, I'm not the most media uh, social media savvy, but I do pay attention to it. Well, Every, occasionally, I'll tweet something here. You there. know, when you're writing those 350 page books and you have uh, you know artificial intelligence scanning thousands of documents for you, you don't have time to be tweeting. It's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.